Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Zach Cox from Nesson in just a little bit. The Patriots right now, they're up against it, man. This becomes a must-win game against the Jets on Sunday after starting the season 0-2. So we'll chat with Zach about some of the issues this team has right now and really what to expect against a Jets defense that's really good. Obviously, Zach Wilson not good on the other side, but the Patriots offense has struggled at times this season as well. So we'll get into all that with Zach Cox in just a little bit. But where I want to start is after that loss on Sunday and the possibility that I just alluded to, the Patriots dropping to 0-3, just sort of what could transpire if the Patriots lose this game on Sunday and sort of the future of the organization. And what I think should happen from Bill Belichick's perspective, I believe that Bill should be sniffing around the Chargers job. I really do for a couple of reasons. I don't think Robert Kraft has the balls to fire Bill. But if Bill has another opportunity that's way better for Bill personally from a coaching perspective, this could be the way that Robert could move on from Bill. Robert will get some bad press if he just fires Bill Belichick, right? But if Bill Belichick wants to leave and he wants to go to a different organization and coach somewhere else, Robert's not going to take a lot of the blame because it's Bill deciding to leave. But let's just start with the Bill side of things. It feels like ever since Tom left and won his Super Bowl, Kraft has been taking shots at Bill Belichick, right? Kraft was asked at the owners' meetings that if Bill's job would be in jeopardy if he has another losing season or if he's going to be here to chase down Don Shula's wins record. Kraft responded, Look, I'd like him to break Don Shula's record, but I'm not looking for any of our players to get great stats. We're about winning, doing whatever we can to win, and that's our focus now. It's very important to me that we make the playoffs, and that's what I hope happens here. So 
Not exactly a big-time endorsement from your owner if you're Bill Belichick after you did give him six Super Bowls. And remember, Kraft didn't blame Mac for last season. Kraft said this, I'm a big fan of Mac. He he came to us as a rookie. He quarterbacked his rookie season and did a very fine job, I thought. We made the playoffs. I think we experimented with some things last year that frankly didn't work when it came to him, in my opinion. And I think we made changes that I think will put him in a good position to excel. So essentially, and we've all done this as well, blaming Bill for the Patricia thing, even though at the time Kraft supported the decision. But nonetheless, he's essentially blaming Bill for everything that happened last year because he also said, (laughs) Robert Kraft, that he didn't blame Patricia, that Patricia is a guy that was put in a difficult position. It was sort of an experiment in retrospect. I don't think it was the right thing. I feel bad for him because he's such a hard worker and he got put in a difficult position. So basically, everything that happened last year, it's not in the quarterback, as Robert Kraft said, and it's not on Matt Patricia. It is solely on Bill Belichick, right? And essentially what Robert Kraft was saying in the offseason is you better get me back to the playoffs, right? And it feels like if they don't get back to the playoffs, it's going to go on Bill. Bill's going to get blamed for this again. So that's sort of the synopsis of where Kraft's at. He has basically blamed Bill for everything that happened last year. And I'm not saying that's fair or unfair. I'm just saying the owner has basically said as much publicly. So it feels like what Bill has done previously has been forgotten. With Tom really gone since, what, the start of the 2020 season, it's as if we forget sometimes. Not us in the fan base, but a lot of people in the fan base maybe feel this way, is like Bill's resume has almost become underappreciated. Because remember, the first dynasty was built behind the defense. And right now, I've been very critical of Bill. He's made some really poor decisions as it pertains to roster building. And some of the coaching decisions that he's made, I really didn't agree with. We went into detail about that with Ted Johnson last week, some of the decisions he made in that Philadelphia game, right? But if I'm Bill, we know Kraft loves the quarterback, Mac Jones. If you're Bill, is there a part of you that feels, you know what, I'm kind of being underappreciated here, right? And if you look at that Chargers team, Brandon Staley's going to be gone. It's just a matter of, hey, is it after week three? Is it after week five? Is it after week seven? Is it, does he get the rest of the season, right? At some point, he is going to be fired because he is a horrendous football coach. He's a defensive guy, and if you look at it since 2021 when he took over that job, the Chargers are 25th in success rate on defense. Last year, they gave up 145.8 rushing yards per game. That was 28th in the NFL. So we had all this blame last year, if you're the Chargers, on Joe Lombardi, the guy running the offense, and they bring in Kellen Moore. And the offense is better, but guess what? The defense still stinks with Brandon Staley, a defensive coach. They've given up points on 54.5% of their drives. That's 30th in the NFL. They're getting worse. And I get they played the Dolphins in week one, but they played the Titans in week two, not exactly a juggernaut from an offensive perspective. So ordinarily, when you see a coaching change, you fire a defensive guy, you go get an offensive guy. You fire an offensive guy, you go get a defensive guy. You fire a hard ass, you go get a player's coach. You fire a player's coach, you go get a hard ass, right? That's ordinarily how it works. But with the Chargers, what they really just need is a competent NFL head coach and their defense, which is their coach's specialty, he's bad at it. You actually need a defensive guy more than you need an offensive guy at this point. And I know they have Kellen Moore on their staff, and he'll probably take over at some point this year as the interim head coach, but 
they can't go with another first-time head coach if you're the Chargers, right? You just can't do it. You just tried to do it with Brandon Staley, who wasn't a proven commodity. You need to go out there and get a proven guy. And is there any more proven coach than Bill Belichick? And Bill, with Bill from this perspective, he'll get the credit for everything with the Chargers. Justin Herbert right now, there is a certain segment of NFL fans that thinks he's just been screwed by the organization and that the Chargers are wasting him. And I would label that as basically the nerd community thinks that Justin Herbert is just completely being misused and he's being screwed over by this bad Chargers organization. I actually really tend to agree with that take. I think Herbert's incredibly talented, but there's also a segment of NFL fans that thinks he's a loser and he's overrated and he's never won anything, right? So those are sort of the two groups with Herbert. He's overrated, he's not that good, he's a loser, or, hey, he's really good, but the organization stinks, right? Those are the two groups of people in terms of how they think about Justin Herbert. Either way, if Bill goes there and Justin Herbert becomes a winner, Bill gets all the credit for that from both of those communities, right? Where the people that say, hey, Justin Herbert's a loser, he hasn't won anything. If Bill wins something with him, it's, oh, well, he got Bill Belichick. And then the other community where they say, hey, this guy has been completely misused. It's like, oh, well, Belichick got him right. And they figured out what to do from an offensive perspective. Bill gets the credit for that. And even, yes, there is issues there defensively with that team in terms of their personnel. And they've had a ton of injuries. But they do have Bosa. They do have Derwin James. And if that side of the ball gets righted, because right now, as we mentioned, they're 30th in terms of points against uh, points you give up on drives. And they've been one of the worst defenses in the NFL since Brandon Staley has taken over. Who gets the credit for the defense turning around? Again, it would be Bill Belichick, right? He would get all the credit for the offense and the quarterback, Justin Herbert, and he would get all the credit for the defense too. And if I was Bill and I took this hypothetical job that I'm putting out there right now, I would keep Kellen Moore as the offensive coordinator, but we'll see. Maybe Kellen Moore gets a job elsewhere. But how about the history element for Bill? This is another reason this is appealing to Bill Belichick from my perspective. No coach in NFL history has ever won a Super Bowl with two different franchises. Now, maybe Mike McCarthy can pull it off this year with the Dallas Cowboys, but we've seen historically Mike McCarthy, not the greatest coach in the world, and the Cowboys, not exactly a team that's known for being tough mentally when they got on the big stage, at least since the 1990s. Doug Peterson has a chance with the Jaguars. We'll see. I mean, that's kind of a long shot. Sean Payton, I don't think that's happening in Denver this year, right? But that sort of historical element, Bill loves the history of the NFL. That would sort of re-energize Bill. And then I think, well, then Bill can almost pin, like if Mac doesn't play well, Bill can sort of pin this on Robert Kraft. Because remember, the whole scene when they drafted Mac, hey, we good with this pick, we good with this pick. And Kraft like wanted it out there, sort of the perception that, yeah, he was part of the process. He wanted Mac Jones. So if Mac Jones just ends up and I hope this isn't the case, and you know how I feel about Mac. I don't think he's the most talented guy in the world, but I do like him, and I hope that he succeeds. But if Mac fails, it won't be on Bill anymore. It'll be more about Robert Kraft and the Patriots organization without Bill Belichick, right? And with the Chargers, there's really no pressure. Bill goes in there, not that Bill's afraid of pressure. He's an immediate savior. You get the most out of Herbert. You get the most out of that defense. Can you imagine, too, from a historical element again, if he ever knocked off that Chiefs dynasty that took over for his dynasty, right? Like he goes to the NFC West and maybe he wins the division or he eliminates, eliminates them in a playoff game. That would be a big thing too. 
Now, from a Patriots side of this thing, too, you could start over with new people in the front office that are capable of drafting, and Mayo takes over. Robert loves Mayo. Remember this whole thing about Mayo? Could he be a head coach? Would he be interviewing for other jobs? And the Patriots made sure they kept him in-house. Robert would get his new head coach. They could figure out the front office thing. And then you think about it, if Bill doesn't get Kellen Moore to stay with him with the Chargers, maybe Josh McDaniels gets fired from the Raiders. I know they won in week one, but they got beat pretty handily in week two. Maybe he takes Bill O'Brien with him if Bill O'Brien doesn't want to stay if Bill leaves. But that's sort of where I'm at, is Bill is not winning in the near term with this team. There, we've seen it. We saw the talent on Sunday night when the Dolphins were on the field against the Patriots. And the owner continues to put breadcrumbs out there that there's pressure on Bill. At least he wants that perception out there that it's got to be better. He's putting all this pressure on Bill. Well, show him. <laughs> Bill goes elsewhere. I feel like this is the perfect fit for the Chargers. I feel like it's the perfect fit for Bill Belichick if things start to go south this season for this team. Makes a lot of sense. All right. Another thing I thought about is after that Patriots loss is just where the other franchises are in town right now as it compares to the Patriots. And it got me thinking about what an opportunity Jason Tatum has to have an incredible run here in this city. This really could be his town for the foreseeable future. And right now, I believe it is his town. But think about where the other franchises are at. Okay, so let's start with the Bruins. David Pasternak is the guy for the Bruins now. He's been the best player for a few years. But now that Bergeron's retired, he's clearly the guy. I know you have Marshawn here, and he's won a cup, of course. But Pasternak is the superior player. Pasternak just had a ridiculous season. He finished runner-up in the Hart Trophy to Connor McDavid. Great season. And the Bruins team, though... How good are they really going to be in the short term, right? Bergeron was still really good last year. Like, he retired. He was still a really good player for this team. Of forwards that played 800 minutes last year on 5-on-5, five five, he was on ice for just 18 goals. That was the fewest in the league. The Bruins on 5-on-5 five five with Bergeron on the ice, goals for percentage was 71.9%. That was first in the NHL. Oh, and he won the most face-offs last year in the league. So he's still, and by the way, he just won the Selkie for the best defensive forward in the NHL. He's still one of the he was still one of the better players in the league, not to say that he was in the conversation with like the elite of the elite players, but that's a massive loss losing your first line center. And on top of that, Tyler Bertuzzi leaves in free agency. He goes to Toronto. You traded away Taylor Hall. Krejci also retired. Your second line center, and Dmitry Orlov left in free agency too. He went to the Carolina Hurricanes. So what made this team the best regular season team in NHL history was its depth. That's gone. They don't have the depth anymore. So it doesn't really feel like a contender in the near future, this Bruins team. Just for next year, they're plus 1,500 to win the cup on FanDuel. That's tied for the eighth shortest odds. It doesn't feel like a true contender. So Pasternak, for him to get into this being his town, he would have to win a cup. And I don't see that happening in the short term. And for the Bruins, they'll be competitive going forward. But they don't really feel like a true contender like the Celtics. Okay, with the Patriots, as we mentioned, they're trying to avoid an 0-3 loss this week. And with Mac, it's more likely he doesn't get a second contract with the Patriots than he becomes a real true star. And I like Mac. This is not a personal thing with Mac. It just I don't see him being a real true star at the quarterback position in the NFL. You just think about the division. Josh Allen is not going anywhere in terms of the quarterbacks in your own division. And Tua is playing incredible football right now. And I get you're always going to have this injury concern with Tua, but he's also the superior player to Mac right now. 
We've seen it for more than a season now. Before last season, I thought Mac was going to be the better player, but the evidence points in Tua's direction. Tua has been the better player for two years now. And then you just look at the rest of the AFC. You have Lamar Jackson, who just got paid, and he had an incredible game last weekend. Joe Burrow, and I know the Bengals are 0-2. He's dealing with this calf situation, but he's already made it to a Super Bowl. And he's beaten Mahomes three times. Trevor Lawrence is an absolute stud. Mahomes is only 28. Justin Herbert, as I alluded to earlier, maybe Bill's future quarterback. He's going to get a new coach at some point, right? And that hopefully that's a competent organization. And this doesn't even account for guys like Anthony Richardson, who I really like as a rookie. That's the quarterback I like the most coming out of college last year. But that dude's impressive. Like, he could pass Mac. Not saying it's happening right now, but he could. So the point is, Mac is never going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the AFC. So I don't see him ever being the guy that owns this town if he can't even do that. And I like Mac. This is not meant to be a harsh criticism of him. But he's just not in the same zip code as those other quarterbacks in the league. And quite frankly... He's not, and this is sort of a defensive, Mac, he's not set up to succeed based on the personnel. And we'll get into some of that with Zach Cox in just a little bit. It's actually shocking in some sense. Like, I I just told you that I think Bill should think about that Chargers gig. But it's also like, I was intrigued when Bill was going to have the opportunity with a quarterback on a rookie contract. The reality is so far up until this point, he's kind of fucked it up in terms of that's supposed to be a cheat code of the NFL, having the quarterback on a rookie contract. Year one was fine. Mac was pretty good. You made it to the postseason. Year two, the Matt Patricia experience goes south. And year three, you go cheap at the offensive line position and you don't have a legit bona fide number one receiver. So you really, in terms of you have a limited quarterback like Mac, you haven't given him a fair chance. You've had a bad line. You've had below average weapons. And one year, you didn't even have an offensive coordinator. Like imagine if any other franchise did this in the first three years of their young quarterback's career. It really is mind-numbing, and that guy who was running that organization probably wouldn't still have a job. But anyway, the Patriots, they don't feel like a contender in the near future, and who knows if Mac is even the guy when they get back to being contenders down the road again, right? He may not even be that guy. Okay, so I don't see the Bruins as a contender at the moment. The Patriots are not, and the future is not very promising right now. So that brings me to the Red Sox. Okay, the Sox are the closest to title contention in the non-Celtics division, because clearly the Celtics are a step above all these teams, more than a step above all these teams. But what we've seen with this organization before, as we're talking about the Red Sox here, 2012, they finished last place or in last place. And the following season, they win the World Series in 13. So they go from last to first. And we know the Red Sox ownership group is reeling right now. And by firing Bloom, they acknowledged, hey, things need to change here. We want to win. So whoever takes over, I believe, is going to get the green light to spend. And then you look at this organization in terms of the farm system. We've told you they're up to fifth in Baseball America's latest rankings. And when you look at some of the guys in the farm, Roman Anthony is a stud. Marcelo Meyer, stud. And I know he's dealing with an injury right now. But then you kind of feel like, okay, they just drafted Kyle Teal, unbelievable hitter from Virginia, to go along with Rafaela, who we've seen get his experience now with the big league club. You have Casas as a young player. You have Bayo as a young pitcher. Okay, And there's certainly pieces there. Casas is a great player. Rafi should be the star of the Red Sox. Like if you're looking for that star who's going to own the town, it should be Rafi. But his defense, (laughs) he has the fourth most errors of anyone in baseball and the most of anybody that doesn't play shortstop. It's just not good enough, right? And I know he's coming off winning the player of the week in the American League. Congratulations, Tim. But he's too up and down. The star was Mookie. This could, could have been Mookie's town 
in the post-Tom Brady era, but Mookie's in L.A. But even if we say the Red Sox are the closest to contention in that non-Celtics division, there's no guarantee, right? Like the Orioles, they're starting to win. They're already in the playoffs, and they also have the number one prospect in the game in Jackson Holiday, right? My whole point is, just by referencing the Orioles, is they're set up. There's a chance that the Red Sox, there's a chance that they could actually fuck up and screw up and mess up the hiring of the next GM, right? Like, that would not be out of the question because guess what? They just screwed up the last hiring in terms of High and Bloom. So with the Sox, even though I believe they're the closest, there's no guarantee there. They may just mess up the GM thing. Even though I think the GM is really set up here, whoever takes over, they could certainly screw that up. And still, that GM, whoever's hired, still does need to find pitching because there's not a lot of high-level pitching prospects in the Red Sox organization. The farm system is really good, but there's not those high-level pitching prospects, right? And also with the Sox, maybe like the guy that could be the star is Meyer. Maybe it's Roman Anthony in a couple of years. Maybe it's Casas. And I like Casas because I think he's really unique. He could certainly play on that, and he's just an incredible player. But the Red Sox would have to be consistent contenders to do that. So we're still, we're not exactly there yet with the Red Sox. And there isn't the guy right now. I mean, if I was going to predict somebody, I would say Casas, just because I think that his plate discipline, the combination of his plate discipline and raw power, it's very unique. You don't see that across the sport. Like if I was going to pick somebody for the next five years to be the best player on the Red Sox, unequivocally, I would pick Casas over Meyer. Meyer's not going to hit with the same level of power. Over Rafi, Rafi's not going to be as consistent as Casas in terms of Rafi swings at way too many pitches out of the zone. We've seen that. He goes through way too many ups and downs. And basically, Casas has been good since the start of May. So he would be my bet, but we're also that would also be requiring me to bet on this team being a consistent winner over the next five to six years or so, which I certainly cannot do that with this Red Sox organization right now. So just to summarize, the Bruins feel like they're about to hop on that treadmill of mediocrity, right? where they aren't quite real contenders. They aren't bad. They're a good team. They're worth watching, but they're not a true contender. The Patriots, I don't know what they're doing. They're trying to compete. The defense is great, but they have a bad line, and they don't have elite weapons, and who knows what's going to happen with Mac Jones long-term. The Red Sox, they need to still hire a GM, and they got to hit that out of the park to give them a chance at long-term success to even think, okay, this guy's the guy. He's the star in this town, right? The Celtics are the only guarantee right now to be a true contender. They're the favorites right now to win the NBA championship. FanDuel has them at plus 470. The Nuggets are second at plus 480. So think about that. Nobody in this town has really taken over since Brady left in 2019. Teams have had their runs, right? The Bruins played in the Cup in 19. And if Pasta is great in that series, maybe it already is his town. Like if Pasta and the Bruins win in 19 and Pasta is great instead of playing really poorly in the Stanley Cup final, maybe Pasta's the guy, but he didn't, So and he doesn't have a cup. So it doesn't feel like he has an immediate chance right now to take over the town, as fun as he is to watch. Mookie could have been that guy, but he left, right? So Mookie, of course, I, and I don't even want to get on it. I don't want to go on a digression because it's going to make me sad, but Mookie could have been the guy. He would have already been the guy, right? So that leaves me with Tatum, who was already a two-time All-NBA first-team guy, and he made a third team as well. And you think about it, People my age and slightly older than me and slightly younger than me. We have this gap in championships right now that seems massive. To the older fan, it doesn't for sure, right? But for the younger fan, this gap in championships in this town feels massive. 
The last championship, the Sox in 18 and the Patriots technically in 19, but it happened the 2018 season, right? Think about the world we just lived in for two decades. Starting in 2001, you have the Patriots. They win again in 2003, so a year in between. 04, you have both the Red Sox and the Patriots. Then in 07, you have the Red Sox. So a little bit of a gap there, but not too long, especially for most cities. But then in 08, we get the championship from the Celtics. In 2011, we get the Bruins hoisting the Stanley Cup. In 13, we get the Red Sox again. 14 Patriots, 16 Patriots, 18 Patriots, and 18 Red Sox. So the biggest gaps we got were from 04 to 07 and 08 to 11. And now we're at 18 to 23, right? In terms of 2018 to 2023. It feels like, as I said, for my age group, it feels like an eternity. So first of all, Tatum's team is going to be the most relevant, right? But basically, Tom had this thing for 20 years. And because the standard Tom set, these other organizations needed to win championships. You needed to win. And think about this. When is the last time a Celtic was the guy in this town? You have to go back to the 1980s with Larry Bird, right? Because even with Pierce and Kevin Garnett, this was Tom's town, right? This was Tom's town. And before Garnett got here, and I know that Pierce made the conference championship in the early 2000s, but the Celtics were a mess. Before Garnett got here, the Celtics were tanking to try to get one of the first two picks, get Greg Oden or Kevin Durant, right? Like Pierce played on some bad teams. So with Tatum, he's already the best athlete in town. I had him number one. Remember when I did those rankings? But there are still fans here that will not fully embrace Tatum as the guy in this town until he wins a championship. And I believe that is fair based on the standard that has been set here over the past since basically since the turn of the century. But Tatum has an opportunity that every athlete not named Tom Brady in the past 20 years didn't have. None of these other athletes not named Tom Brady had this opportunity. Pierce, Ortiz, Chara, Bergeron, whoever you want to go through here, they never had the chance to be the guy here because it was Tom Brady's city, right? First year, he takes over for Drew Bledsoe, second year of his career. But first year, he takes over for Bledsoe, he wins a Super Bowl. Two years after that, wins another one. Like, no, but there was, and then he wins another one. There was no room for anybody else. It's wide open for Tatum. He is by far the leader in the clubhouse. We went through it. There are not a lot of threats. I just went through them all. There are not a lot of threats to Tatum based on where the other organizations are. The one thing I will say, because we are desperate for another juggernaut team, right? We are desperate. We are hungry for a championship level team. Tatum has more pressure to win a title in this town as any athlete we've seen in quite some time, right? Because you go through it, like, I guess you could say Bird in the early 1980s, but Bird came into the league and he was immediately one of the best players. Like the assumption was he was going to win and he won in 1981, right? So he won, what, his second year in the NBA. Then you think about the other guy that I would put up here in terms of when I look at the pressure Tatum faces to win a championship to really take over this town. Bloodsoe had a lot of pressure, right? Being the number one pick, like that's probably the answer because... You expected big things from Drew Bloodsoe, and he did make it to a Super Bowl. I love Bloodsoe. We had him on the pod. Great guy. But Brady didn't really have any pressure on him, right? He came in and he won. Immediately, nobody expected it. He just won. So he didn't have a lot of pressure. But remember, with Tatum going forward now, he has the super max extension that is looming. If he gets that done, there are no, like, if he gets the championship done after getting the Supermax, because he's going to sign the Supermax, so he's going to be here for a long time. Nobody passes on the Supermax. We just saw it with Jalen, who had his issues with the organization in the past, right? But if he wins and he gets it done, there are no longer any doubters here locally. 
he does what Pierce couldn't do. Pierce was never the best player on a championship team, and I know he won the finals MVP, but we all know that Garnett was the best player on that team. And the thing about it, if he does it next year, even though we've had, like, throughout the early history of Tatum's career, we've had disappointing endings. The Warriors finals, where he disappeared. He was awful in game six. He was awful, really, throughout that series. The Heat conference finals twice, right? Remember, they lose in the bubble, but last year that was disappointing. And I, But I don't even know, like, if you think about it, the previous three games before Tatum turns the ankle, 33-11-7, and 21-8-11, 31-12-5. He was outplaying Jimmy Butler if he doesn't turn his ankle. And I don't want to go back in the past, but maybe the Celtics already win that and they're playing the Nuggets in the finals. Anyway, but this is just right now. Tatum is in his entering his 25-year-old season. Jokic just won. He was 27, his 27-year-old season. Giannis won in 2021. That was his 26-year-old season. Curry was 26. So as hard as we as a fan base and the national media have been at times with Tatum because he's playing on the biggest stage, it isn't normal for a guy in his 23-year-old season to be the best player on a championship team like Tatum was when he made the finals against the Golden State Warriors. That doesn't happen. Like, not very often. Like, you can go back to Tim Duncan. Like, that's the only guy recently that's done it as, like, the best guy at the age of 23. It's just we rarely see that. But because we've had all these experiences with Tatum where, as a fan base, we've suffered difficult losses with the Celtics team as well. He's built up the scars. He's built up the calluses from those tough losses. It would be incredible if he gets it done because it feels like despite the city being so successful in terms of championships in these past or in the past previous two decades, this team and Tatum, we've seen them go through pain and we've gone through with this team, right? Like not comparing the players, but Isaiah Thomas had to get past the Celtics and the Lakers. Jordan had to get past the Pistons. Peyton Manning had to get past Belichick and the Patriots defenses, right? It's not one specific team with Tatum, but it's just slaying that championship dragon And when you think about it, if he does get it done, this will be unequivocally his town. It already feels like his town, but to get the full embrace from everybody, right, where there is this level of pressure to win a championship, if he wins a championship, unequivocally unequivocally it's his town. There's no other argument to the contrary, right? And I just feel like we need him as a sports town to break down the door and win a championship because if not him, then who? And I don't want to make this sound grim, but if Tatum doesn't elevate this town to a championship, we may be waiting for a while. We need it to be him. So let's see what it looks like. Obviously, it's going to be a new mix in terms of you bring in Kristaps Porzingis, but no distraction in terms of the coaching situation. And I believe Tatum's going to have his best season. He gets better every year. We just saw him come off the all first team NBA. I believe he's going to be first team all defense because he's going to want to set the tone now that Marcus Smart isn't here anymore. And I feel like in a weird way, as much as we appreciate Marcus Smart as a player, he's going to embrace this now, unequivocally being his team. Tatum is not the most rah-rah guy, but you can tell that he's starting to take on more of an ownership situation with this team, a leadership situation where he knows it's his team. He needs to be the leader of the team. And I do feel like now he's ready for that role. So it is kind of crazy to just look at it because... It felt like every year at least one of our teams was competing for a championship here, but now it feels like it's all Tatum. Tatum's the guy that's going to break down the door and get this thing done. All right, a lot more to get into. Should we be worried about the Patriots? Can they pull off an upset? Or not an upset, but can they beat the Jets who they've owned historically? But can they move it against that Jets offense? I don't know. I'm worried about this game against the Jets. We'll chat with Zach Cox from Nesson about that next. 
Get ready to start the NFL week off right because right now all customers can get a no-sweat same-game parlay for Thursday Night Football. Just place a three-leg same-game parlay on this week's game between the Niners and the Giants and you'll get bonus bets back if you don't win. So if you want to get on this one, get in on it now because it's going down plus 956. The Niners to cover the 10 points, which I really like. The Niners are the superior team. McCaffrey, anytime touchdown score. Niners over 13 and a half points in the first half. And Daniel Jones, anytime touchdown score. And I think Daniel Jones got to run one in at this game. It's not going to be close, but at some point, Daniel Jones, we've seen it. He's a mobile quarterback. He'll get into the end zone. So that's pretty good value, plus 956 if you want to have some fun watching Thursday Night Football. NFL same game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payday. Build your own or choose from one of the popular SGPs pre-built for you in FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. Visit FanDuel.com slash Pike so you don't miss out on your chance to get a no-sweat same-game parlay on America's number one sportsbook. FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21-plus and present in select states. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now covers the Patriots for Nesson. It is Zach Cox. Zach, what's going on, man? Not too much, man. Thanks for having me uh, back on. What is this? Uh, three, four, five? Uh, I don't know. It's always four good to. Uh, I think we're. I think we're four or five, man. Yeah, it's it's always good to come chat with you guys. Yeah, appreciate having you on. So, hey, before we get into some bigger details with the Patriots, some important things. I got to say this because I I forgot to get to it on Sunday, Zach, just because, you know, so much stuff is going on after the game and you're upset that the Patriots lost and all this. The Patriots, I don't understand why they have that uniform available. Okay, the Pat the Patriot red uniform, the helmets are unbelievable and they're wearing like some of the worst uniforms in the NFL. And I know there's some bad uniforms across the sport, but I hate the all blue I'd rather go to the 90s blue, the um, the Drew Bledsoe ones back in the 90s than the ones they currently wear, or the ones they wore for the majority of the Tom Brady era with the silver pants rather than the all blue. I just feel like, man, when you have these type of options, I mean, you could make an argument that that Pat the Patriot is the best uniform in the NFL. I don't know why they like these all blue ones. They're terrible. It's phenomenal. I mean, the red ones are so good. I've been hoping for the last couple of years that they'll bring back a white version at some point, even though I know there's some NFL rules about how many you can wear. But yeah, I mean, the blue ones, the all blues just feel, I like them when they were the color rush, but they just feel like kind of placeholders. It's like, all right, we're, we're going to have one, one home Jersey, one away Jersey, one pair of pants. We'll, we'll wear this for a couple of years while we kind of move on from the Tom Brady era. Then we'll figure out something better. They're just kind of boring. I don't think they're terrible, but they're just, there's so much to work with there. And then, yeah, you roll out a jersey like the uh, like the Pat Patriot throwbacks. And you're like, man, like this team looks so good right now. Yeah. And then you're going to go back to just kind of that that high schoolish look that they go that they usually wear next week. That's a good way to put it. The high school thing. And I did like him, too. When it was like the color rush where they wore him, I believe the first time they wore him was against Houston on a Thursday yep. night yeah, game because that's game. when they started doing all that color rush stuff. I'm like, all right, this is cool for a week as a one off. But. As the permanent uniform, no. And I even like the white uniforms from the Brady era, and they still basically wear those white ones, but the old ones from the Brady era, the white top with the navy pants, I like those ones. It's just the all blues, man. I can't do it. All right, so another thing I wanted to get your take on is, so earlier I was saying that if I'm Bill and this thing starts to go south a little bit, I'd be sniffing around the Chargers job. 
because they they have Justin Herbert, who is a really good quarterback, who, by the way, doesn't turn the ball over a lot. Like, it's this misconception. Like, he actually likes to check it down a lot. But the defense has been terrible. Brandon Staley's going to get fired. So Bill could get credit for the defense. And a lot of people think Herbert's just not a winner right now. If he can turn Herbert around in terms of the perception of Herbert, he'd get all the credit there. I just feel like if I was going to leave and I was Bill, I mean, the Chargers thing, man, looks looks appealing to me. I'd at least be sniffing around that if I was Belichick because we've seen all these breadcrumbs, Zach, where Belichick is, or Kraft, I should say, has sort of taken shots at Bill about whether it's the Patricia thing, whether it's, hey, it's really important for us to get into the playoff, talking about the Don Shula record. Like, that would be an option for me if I was Bill. And he could be, I mentioned this, you know, no coach has won the Super Bowl with two different teams. That's yeah. history. Yeah, that's that's something I think Sean Payton is is trying to become the first person to do. I, I don't think he has a good chance of doing that this year with no. how Denver's looked. Uh, I mean, I know Bill and and Josh McDaniels liked Herbert a lot coming out of that draft. Ooh. Uh, they definitely have a ton of talent uh, on that Chargers team. I don't know. I can't really picture Bill Belichick in powder blue. Uh, <laughs> but I also said the same thing about Tom Brady in a in a Buccaneers uniform. So uh, crazier things have happened. But uh, I don't know. I, I think I would be surprised if belichick coaches uh, another team anywhere else um i mean me if the only one i can really envision is something like the giants just because he has such a connection to that franchise but uh i don't know it is going to be a interesting situation uh, i would say if this season does not if it goes on the current trajectory that it's been on if this is a five win six win patriots team uh, I still don't think that's go- going to be the case. I do think they're going to turn it around that's and fair. still be a competitive playoff type team. Uh, but yeah, then you're getting into the situation where Kraft could make some sort of a move. I, I don't know. I think it has to be in that five, six yeah. kind of way out of the playoff range for him, him to even consider that. Uh, but that is when you start getting into that territory. Yeah, that's a good point. Like if it does get ugly this season to that range, the five, the six wins, even seven wins, then I think Kraft would actually have to consider it because he put all this stuff out there that's important to get to the playoffs and all that. So I do yeah, think maybe two, that would put it in that position. Let's hope straight, we don't get two straight off seasons as well. So yeah, sorry for tender yeah. up there. He he said that basically sent the same message last off season and then this past off season, um, kind of in increasingly stronger terms that hey, I want my team to be at the very least back in the playoffs and getting to the divisional round. Uh, he hasn't really said, hey, we need to be winning Super Bowls right now because I don't think that's realistic. But he's he's come right out and said what he what his expectations are for this team. Uh, and so far, they haven't reached that. So we'll, we'll see what they can uh, whether they can do that this year. Yeah, it's going to be crazy to monitor this thing going forward. Let's hope it doesn't get to that point because I need a football season, okay? I just We didn't no. have a baseball season, at least the second half of the season. I need a football season right now. So let's hope that they can get this thing back on track so let's start with the offense week one they have the starting guards out so city sal plays he in pff grade not that it's to be all end all he was 64th of 65 guards gave up five pressures Mafi was 61st out of 65 guards that week he gave up seven pressures week two you're without trent brown to the concussion you have kelvin anderson and vidarian low out there so if you look at their numbers low 51st out of 64 in pff grade among tackles Anderson, 63rd out of 65. Anderson gave up nine pressures, six hurries, two hits, one sack, okay? The third most, those nine pressures. So this has been an issue week one and week two. 
We thought this would happen before the season. You had injuries, of course, to Trent Brown and Riley Reef. The Trent Brown one is more difficult to predict than the Riley Reef situation where he's playing guard and a game that he gets injured when he's really a tackle. But as we mentioned, strange and on when you missed week one, but this has completely changed, it feels like, the way that Bill O'Brien can call plays. And so I just wonder, how much better do you think this line can get? Where I'm not saying it would ever be a strength of this, this team, but a healthy group, how much better can they be than what we've seen in the first two weeks of the season? Uh, I think they can be good enough. Uh, I think if you get all of the pieces in there and you actually give those guys a chance to work together and practice together and get reps together, then I think they can be easily good enough for this to be a a functional uh, NFL offense, if not a kind of top 15 borderline top 10 offense, which I do think they still have the potential to be if, if everything comes together. It's just the injuries have just killed them. It's looking at the group that they had uh, the other day against the Dolphins. Basically, David Andrews was the only player on that line that was practicing with the Patriots in training camp uh, because Vidarian Lowe at left tackle joined the team basically right before cutdown day in that trade. He's only been around for what, two or three weeks at this point. Cole Strange missed almost all of training camp. Owenu did miss all of training camp and uh, spring practice. And he also still wasn't ready to play a full 100% workload. Antonio Mafia ended up replacing him in the fourth quarter, which both Owenu and Belichick said was part of the plan coming in. They they didn't want to give him a full 100% workload. Uh, And then Calvin Anderson missed all of training camp with an an illness that, while we don't know the details of, he said was serious enough that it made him think that his career might be over. So if those are your four, four of your five starters in a game against, uh, I mean, the Dolphins don't have the talent up front that Philly does that the team they saw in week one does, but you still got some very uh, potentially disruptive players in that group. And it's just a, a cohesiveness and a communication thing. That's just hard to, it's hard to develop when you don't have practice right. reps together. I think you saw that on some of those free rushers. Uh, the, the one that stands out to me is that Ramondre Stevenson play uh, on third and one. Uh, it was a toss play. And then I believe it was Javon Holland just runs basically straight past Calvin Anderson. It looked like Anderson didn't think he should pick him up, but when didn't think he should pick him up and he ends up blowing up Stevenson in the backfield for a five yard loss, Patriots end up, end up having to punt. And you had a couple of plays like that where it's just, the people weren't on the same page. Uh, and then you had a couple of other plays where the blockers just got overpowered by the defender they were playing against. So it was strange to me that the Patriots offensive line got two starters back in this game and ended up playing worse than it did yeah. against the Eagles. Uh, but yeah, it's the single biggest problem for this team right now. They need to get everybody back healthy. They need to get a one more reps. They need to get strange more reps. They certainly need to get Trent Brown back. I think if they do that, this can be by week, I don't know, four or five, a a solid offensive line, but there's just been way too many moving pieces so far. Yeah, I'm with you too in terms of the cohesion. They need to get those guys on the field together. And they, like you said, they didn't even get to do it in training camp, which is just unfortunate for this team. So looking at the running game, the Patriots right now, 24th in yards per attempt at 3.5. Ramondre is averaging 2.8 yards per attempt, which he was at 5.0 last year. No qualified running back last year, of course, was south of three. And Ramondre Stevenson, one of the better backs in the league, is at 2.8. So this is your best offensive player. And I don't think it's all him. But on the season, if you look at it, in terms of yards after contact, he's at 1.67. That's 50th of 53 qualifiers. Last year, he's at 3.81, which was third of 60 qualifiers. 
Zeke's at 1.75 yards after contact per rush, 47th out of 53. And look, part of this is, as we mentioned, the offensive line. Like, there's a lot of blame on the offensive line when we go to this, too. Like, you couldn't run in between the tackles. That's why I think they were trying to get to the perimeter. One of their only successful runs in that game was actually a pitch to Ramondre Stevenson. But Ramondre, to me, like, I'm not concerned about him. But it doesn't feel like last year, like, he made his yards, right? And he that's why he stuck out to everyone. It's like, whoa, this guy's getting hit two yards behind the line of scrimmage, and he still gained seven yards. Like, how was he doing it? I haven't seen that same version of Ramondre. And maybe part of it is it's just like, he's looking at it, it's like, I got nowhere to go again. Like, this is the same thing that I've been dealing with last year. And I would also say that maybe part of it is the score has dictated less running opportunities for Ramondre as well, where it felt like last year, the games the Patriots won, he would wear you down, right? Like, he would be more effective in the third in the fourth quarter where the defense is like, yeah, I don't know if I want to hit him anymore. Like I've been hitting him for two and a half quarters. So I think maybe that's part of it too. If the Patriots could just get a lead in one of these games, we'd see a more effective Ramondre. Yeah, part of it's certainly the O-line. Part of it's the game script. The fact that the Patriots have been down double digits in the first half of, of both of these games. From an eye test perspective, you, you watch Ramondre Stevenson, especially in this Dolphins game. And you're like, okay, yeah, you, you still see some of the uh, the Ramondre Stevenson type plays, the the making guys miss, the kind of generating some yards after contact. Uh, I think I've seen good moments from both him and Elliott, uh, more so from from Stevenson so far. Uh, I think some of it was a lot of the rushing opportunities they got in this past game were were short yardage type plays, where second and one, third and one, fourth and one, where uh, I don't think they've performed as well in those situations as as they would like to, but. If you're having a third and one kind of inside handoff, even if that's successful, it's probably only going for two or three yards, which kind of skews off the whole average a little bit. But uh, I think the biggest culprit in in this whole uh, in all of their their rushing uh, difficulty so far, it just goes back to the offensive line. Like they've got to they've got to get those guys healthy. They've got to get them on the same page and they got to have them opening holes the way they were even last year. I mean, I mean, obviously, the Patriots offensive line was nothing special. Last season, there were a lot of problems up front, but right. uh, they were able to do enough to to let Ramondre Stevenson have, what was it, over 1,000 rushing yards, 1,400 yep. yards from scrimmage. So uh, I think they can easily get back to that level, but they've got to be uh, performing better than they have uh, in these first two weeks. All right, so this brings me to Mac, who we kind of talked about in terms of the line, but he's sixth in passing yards so far this season, 547, which it's good that he's got the yardage, but then you look at the yards per completion, 8.3, which is 30th of 32 qualifiers. So if you take the top five guys in front of him in terms of passing yards, because Max sixth, Tua is at 14.6 yards per completion. That's first in the NFL. Cousins, 11.1. That's eighth. Stafford, 11.1, ninth. Stroud, 10.8, 11th. Goff, 11.5, which is seventh. Again, Max at 8.3, which is 29th. It's just so much station to station. And if you look at, especially week two, if you look at next gen, 4.3 completed air yards per attempt, 26 out of 32 qualifiers. And then the aggressiveness rating where the percentage of pass attempts that were into tight windows where the closest defender is one yard or closer, 19%, which was the sixth highest rate. So that's just a horrible combination. I'm not putting this on Mac, and I'm not even really putting this on Bill O'Brien. Maybe it all just comes back to what we've been alluding to, the offensive line. But if you have that combination where you have the high amount of tight window throws and they're all short passes, like if they're short passes, there needs to be yak opportunities for your receivers, right? Opportunities thrown after the catch. And it just felt like, especially in that game on Sunday night, 
You didn't have either. Like Max throwing all these short passes, they're all into tight windows. It's like, okay, here's Juju Smith-Schuster on a screen. It gets blown up. It just feels like every that's so difficult to run your offense that way. Yeah, I agree. I think, again, as you mentioned, it goes back to, to offensive line play, Mac being under pressure pretty much immediately. Uh, I think overall his pressure stats were a lot better in this game than yeah. they were in week one and they were last season. That that was one of the kind of takeaways from his performance uh, for me. He also threw very well on the move, which usually isn't, uh, isn't his game, isn't his strong suit. I, I actually liked what I saw overall from Mac Jones uh, in this game better than, than what I saw last week against Philadelphia. I think you saw fewer of the kind of really poor decision type throws. Uh, I, I didn't like the the ball he threw to, to Devontae Parker on that interception. I think there was that play really had no chance, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, you do go back to the fact that it was, it was basically all short passes without much yards after catch opportunity. I think he was 25 for 26 uh, within uh, 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. So he was really yeah. efficient, really accurate on those plays. Uh, but he averaged 5.5 yards per attempt in this game, which was ranked in the bottom 10 of starts that he's had in his NFL career and obviously ranks pretty low uh, kind of NFL wide as well. Uh, I think some of that has to be put on the, the, the receiving core, the pass catchers. They're just, they haven't looked like the, the kind of big play explosive type group so far. Uh, I think it was, uh, it was kind of telling that, Demario Douglas had two of their sort of biggest like wow kind of run after catch explosive sort of ball in his hands type plays. Uh, And then he gets exiled after he fumbles uh, at the end of the first quarter and they don't really have that the rest of the game. Like I I saw good moments from Devontae Parker. I think Hunter Henry has been a really reliable player for them in in both of those games. You've seen a little bit from Gasicki, probably not quite as much as they want to see just yet. And and even Juju had uh, a couple of plays in the red zone that that were valuable gains, valuable first downs for them. But you haven't seen that explosiveness. You haven't seen that big playability. And and it really stands out when you look on the other side and the team that you're playing against yeah. has Tyree Kill <laughs> and Tua Tagovailoa, and even has <laughs> players like, like River Craycraft and Braxton yeah. Berrios who are able to have kind of these big catch and run type plays. Well, and so circling back what you said there about, first of all, the 26 passes that traveled less than 10 yards and you mentioned Demario Douglas, who had those two plays. You're like, okay, this heck guy has something. It just, it, that aggravated me so much. I know this is like sort of in Bill's ethos. This is how Bill coaches. But you could tell this is how they were going to try to win the game. Like station to station, if you're going to play that way, you're not going to threaten teams down the field right now. Maybe eventually that changes when your line gets healthy. Because right now, you have no play action pass game because I think you're afraid that you're not going to be able to protect if you run a play, if you do anything, especially a deep play action pass game, right? Mac right now is 30th of 33 qualifiers, 13.3% of his passing att- or dropbacks are in play action. The average depth of target on those is 2.5 yards on a play action pass. That's it's been, it's t- been, yeah, it's been a <laughs> yeah. ton of like screen. That's basically only been exclusively screened. Yeah. I, I think he's only thrown one under center play action pass through these two games. Oh. Um, I mean, that's it's something that seems like it should be a strength of their of their offense with Mac Jones skill set and Bill O'Brien's history. But I can also see the the other side of of the argument saying, all right, well, yeah, he's going to he's going to fake that handoff. And by the time he turns around, Van Ginkle or whoever's playing on the edge is just going to be directly inside of his face mask already. So it's tough to run those type of sort of long developing type plays 
uh, when your offensive line isn't holding up as well as you want it to. Yeah, Van Ginkle looked like a combination of Nick Bosa and My- and Micah Parsons the other day. Like he, he's that a guy, backup too. He, yeah, he, he wouldn't have even been really playing in that role if if uh, if Jalen Phillips was healthy yeah. was healthy for this game. Uh, and yeah, I mean you got to see Micah Parsons in two weeks, and that's based on the way that they've looked so far. That's not going to be a good situation for their offense. Yeah, and with the Demario Douglas thing, I just I don't know what Bill gained from that. I really don't. Like, okay, so next game maybe he doesn't fumble, but. You hurt your team or you like you lessen your chance to win that game without Douglas. And it shouldn't come down to like this rookie receiver that you drafted in the sixth round. But the reality is you don't have a lot of explosive playmakers in that type of game with all the situations we said with the offensive line. You're going to have to create you're going to need your weapons to create stuff. You needed a player like Demario Douglas. And quite frankly, like and I'm not on the team, but if I was a member, I would be pissed. I'd be like, wait, if I was Mac, I'd be like, okay, this guy can actually do something for me after I throw him the football. Like all these other guys are getting hit right when they catch it. I just feel like, and I know this has been who Bill has been for the past 20 years, but I just feel like, especially in that game specifically, we saw what Demario Douglas can do after the catch. And I just, I I had a really tough time with that decision where I'm just like, come on, man. Like, let's let's try to get the best weapons out there. And Demario Douglas, maybe this is a guy that actually is a good receiver that the Patriots drafted. I would have just played him. Like, it's just, that to me is, I don't know how many other coaches in the league right now in 2023 would have done that. Yeah, I don't think they have the luxury right now from a receiver talent perspective to take somebody like that and say, you know what, we're going to teach you a lesson. You're not going to play the rest of this game even though it's very clear and it was clear even earlier in that game that he has that, that kind of juice and explosiveness that nobody else in that group is really providing. As you mentioned, this has been Bill Belichick's MO basically forever. He even saw it. uh, I think it was what, two years ago with Ramondre Stevenson. He had a fumble in the season opener and then basically didn't play for four or five weeks. It was really until week seven or eight that season when he finally got back into, into the mix on offense in any, uh, any type of real capacity. From a Patriots perspective, you hope that doesn't happen with Demario Douglas. I don't think it will, uh, just based on the what we've heard from players and coaches these last couple of days. Uh, Mac Jones backed him really strongly right after the game. Bill O'Brien <laughs> earlier today was basically, he said, we have a ton of confidence uh, in Pop Douglas. Uh, we like when he's on the field. We want him to be part uh, of this offense. Uh, and that's the guy who's making those offensive decisions there. So I- I'd be a little surprised if this is a situation where Douglas is kind of persona non grata for four or five weeks until he proves that he cannot fumble. Uh, I would assume and think, and I think it should be the case where he's very much back in the mix this weekend. Uh, and also just from a, uh, accountability standpoint, whatever you want to call it, uh, I was very impressed that he was able to, and willing to stand at his locker for, 45 minutes after the game uh, on Sunday, he went through two full media scrums plus a couple of one-on-ones with other reporters. Uh, I know people who aren't in the media will be like, who cares? It's not a big deal. And maybe it isn't in the end, but we've seen plenty of players, even veterans, when they make a mistake, they just bolt out of the locker room. They say, Hey, I'm not talking about it. Don't, don't talk to me. It's, it's none of your business, yada, yada, yada. Uh, And that's their prerogative. But the fact that Douglas as a young player was willing to stand up there and be like, yeah, I screwed up. Like I, I was looking at the end zone. I got distracted. I didn't see Bradley Chubb coming up behind me. It's a lesson I needed to learn. And like he, he even said like, I'm glad it happened. He was like, I wish it didn't happen in this situation. I wish it didn't happen in a game like this, but it's a lesson I needed to learn. And now I'm going to be, be better from it. 
that just showed a lot of maturity uh, that you don't usually see from, or you don't always see from, from players like this, especially young players. Uh, and it's part of what makes me think that this isn't going to be something that just gets him booted out of the offense uh, until week nine. Yeah, I agree with you. That does take a lot of maturity. And you mentioned Bill O'Brien. That's another guy that if I was Bill O'Brien, I would have been aggravated. Like, hey, Bill, I, I don't have a lot to work with here. Like, this guy maybe right, he's, he's learned his lesson. Come on now. Let's yeah. go. Let's go. Get him back <laughs> let's in. Let's get there. him back out there. By the way, I was thinking about this last night. I kind of like the Monday night, like staggered games where you have two going on at the same time. You get the two screens going. N- neither one of those games were great. And I felt awful for Nick Chubb. I mean, just horrible. Yeah. He's one of the best running backs in the game. And he's probably one of the guys that could actually speak for running backs getting paid. And he goes down, which is just unfortunate to see. But in that game, I also noticed George Pickens. Four receptions for 127. He had the 71-yard touchdown. I'm just thinking to myself, like, oh, you took Tyquan yeah. Thornton before this guy. Tyquan Thornton didn't play again. George Pickens is making ridiculous catches, 71 yards, like, at 71-yard touchdown. It's just, man, that could have been the dynamic playmaker this team needed. Yeah, I mean, you already have the, I mean, everyone knows the the Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin, D.K. Metcalf, whoever you <laughs> yeah. want to name from that draft drafted after Nikhil Harry. Uh, that's definitely going to be a comparison that P- Patriots fans will be closely watching. Uh, Patriots kind of make what was perceived as a reach for Tyquan Thornton. And then I think Pickens went one pick later, one pick later or two picks later. Yeah, he was two, right, picks, two picks after. And he was right time, after that. Yeah. And he certainly seems uh, quite a bit further along uh, in his development uh, than Thornton, who we won't see for at least another two weeks. And, and who knows when he's actually going to get back on the field. Yeah, and Pickens may not have a great season just because I, Matt Canada is a terrible offensive coordinator. And that offense is a total mess. Yeah, it's, they are. It's, gross. it's it's not well run. They don't have a great offensive line, and I, I've never been the biggest Kenny Pickett fan. I thought he was getting way too much hype in the offseason. But it, when they made that pick, I just remember thinking about it. It's like, oh, Pittsburgh t- picked a receiver. They're really good at picking receivers, and the Patriots picked somebody before this guy. Like, what were they thinking? It was just aggravating. But I did want to get to the slow starts, right? They haven't scored in the first quarter. They've been outscored, what, 19 to nothing because you had the miss extra point in the Philly game. Their offensive EPA per play in the first quarter is 30th. They've turned the ball over three times. And I figured, like, this is where the Patriots could actually make some hay is they can scheme things up in the first quarter. But you look at it in terms of the totality. They've scored on just 25% of their drives, 29th. They've turned the ball over on 16.7% of their drives, 23rd. This is just total, not just the first. Mac Jones has attempted 92 passes when trailing, the most in the NFL. Just four attempts when he was been tied, and one resulted, of course, in a pick six. But they haven't had the lead through six weeks, or through two weeks, I should say. And look, you had the bad Mac pick, you had the Zeke fumble, the Douglas fumble. So those are bad plays, and they were driving. It just feels like, to me, like... I've actually felt like their opening drives, it felt like they have been on to something. It felt like Bill O'Brien had a plan. It's just... These turnovers are coming at the most inopportune time. So I don't want to, and I know this is an issue last year for the Patriots where they were, what, 30th in points per game in the first quarter. I don't think this is a thing yet because it's not as if there are three and outs and they're punting, right? Like, I I don't see that. I feel like they have a good game plan. It's just these turnovers have got to stop. So I I don't want to be too concerned about it, but you got to stop putting yourself in these holes. No, I, I totally agree. I, I think the turnovers are the single biggest issue that's that's causing these slow starts. Because as you mentioned, it's the Patriots have actually looked pretty good on these opening drives. Uh, you've seen some some nice little wrinkles from from O'Brien. It, it was the 
uh, some of like the the pony backfield stuff in week yeah. one with Stevenson and and Zeke. Last week it was the um, the three tight ends that they were they, were, they I think they opened in empty with three tight ends, which is something that you don't usually see just kind of Bill O'Brien kind of going deep into his bag for some of these concepts. And they've moved the ball decently well uh, in in each of these two opening drives, Uh, but there's been penalties, there's been sacks. uh, And of course there's been the turnovers. I mean, uh, the Patriots have allowed 33 first half points through these first two games and 20 of them came off turnovers. Uh, Of course, obviously one of them was, directly led to a touchdown in the pick six in week one. And then you had the Elliott fumble that led to a short field that led to a touchdown. And then you had the Demario Douglas fumble on Sunday that also led to a touchdown. Uh, I don't think the defense is completely blameless for these, uh, these slow starts because they have made some mistakes on some of these touchdown drives. Uh, you saw some of the penalties in week one, and then they just weren't really able to get off the field as, as well, as well as they should have been able to uh, against Miami, but that's the biggest thing. I mean, it's, you you can't turn the ball over and either, as was the case in week one, give your opponent easy scoring opportunities, or in week two, uh, the Douglas fumble came in Miami territory after a pretty solid drive. As the Patriots had momentum, they were moving the ball. Uh, they were already in field goal range, uh, and then it just uh, the momentum just immediately goes back in the other direction. And as has been the case for the last couple of years, this just isn't a team that's really built to come back and erase these deficits and and win shootout shootout type games. Uh, I mean, I they've obviously almost come cl- they've come close to doing that in each of these two games. They've uh turned it into a one-score game in the fourth quarter, but they haven't been able to c- complete those comebacks and they're just putting themselves in positions where they have just zero margin for error. Uh, I think you've seen fewer mistakes from them in the second half of both of these games. Uh, but you've still obviously seen some of those. I mean, in this last game, it was the the Mac Jones interception uh, to Xavier Howard that came basically inside Miami's 10 yard line. Uh, you had the the big play touchdown the, to Raheem Mostert. That was just a complete defensive breakdown on all three levels. Yeah. Uh, and then you've had them basically repeatedly getting the ball in prime field position and not being able to do anything about it. I, I think it was, uh, eight drives, seven or eight drives over these two games that they've started outside of their own 40 yard line. Uh, So either in opponent's territory or pretty close to midfield, they've scored exactly seven points on those total drives. Uh, It's been a couple punts, been a couple um, turnovers on downs, only one touchdown. You got to capitalize on those opportunities like that. Uh, But the biggest thing is the turnovers. You can't have these early turnovers that put you in these early deficits. Yeah, and I got to think from a defensive perspective, as you mentioned, the most aggravating part for them in that game is they had a good game plan, and you're going to have to give up something when you're playing the Dolphins, and Waddle had his opportunities, but they limited Tyreek Hill, but most are just getting loose, where he had three 10-plus yard runs, which only Bijan Robinson, Brian Robinson, and James Conner had more, so he was just running all over the Patriots, which even though you're game planning to stop their passing game and you want to limit the explosive plays, you don't want to get run all over the way that the Patriots did in that particular game. And Mostert was incredible. Give him credit. But the Patriots got to be better when it comes to that. But one thing that jumped out to me about the defense, and I'm sure it has to you as well, is I thought coming into the season, I did this right before the year. I was saying that, hey, you know, something that may happen is, hey, people may say, hey, maybe Christian Gonzalez wasn't worth the first round pick because he's going against this gauntlet. Maybe he'll struggle a little bit, right? But trust him. Like, he's going to be good long term. This is going to be a really good player. But seeing him the first few weeks, especially this week, uh, he, he had a 39.2 passer rating against this week when he was targeted. That was second in the NFL. 
his coverage grade and his overall grade as a corner number one for pro football focus. This is against Tyreek Hill. The, he has been legitimately one of the best two corners in the first two weeks of the season, and he's played against A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, Tyreek Hill, and Jalen Waddell. And in this game in particular, you didn't have Jonathan Jones, who you would think you would rely on a lot against Tyreek Hill. I have been incredibly impressed with Christian Gonzalez. And if you're looking for a real positive in the first two weeks, I think this is the biggest positive that's happened. Is He looks like an elite corner already. Now, watch him go out this weekend like CeeDee Lamb beats him like crazy after I said this, but he looks like an elite player. Yeah, one of my big takeaways from this game was that he is essentially saving their cornerback group right now uh, because after the midway point of the second quarter in this past game, the Patriots had no Jonathan Jones, no Jack Jones, no Marcus Jones. So it was basically Christian Gonzalez at one outside cornerback spot, Miles Bryant at the other outside cornerback spot. That's a guy who, if he's your like number five corner slot safety kind of Swiss Army knife type guy, I think he's a valuable player, not somebody you want, and probably not somebody that he would himself want as a starting outside cornerback. And then you had Sean <laughs> Wade, who was the only other available cornerback for this game. And, and he play I think he played 14 snaps in this game that was the most he's ever played in an NFL game so you say that is man you you got a a a rookie in his third game and those two guys that's recipe for disaster against this offense and it really wasn't I mean I have been very impressed with the way Christian Gonzalez has played so far Uh, is worth noting that the Patriots aren't just like sticking him out on the island on an island and saying you cover Tyree kill by yourself. He's had a lot of help over the top. Jabril Peppers was uh, giving him a hand on uh, with kind of over the top coverage on a lot of those Tyree kill routes in this game. But even that notwithstanding uh, the fact that you have had, he was going up against two of the top what? four, three, five uh, receiver duos in the NFL uh, in terms of Brown and Smith with Philly and then obviously Tyreek and and Waddle in this last game. And he hasn't given up any big plays. He's given up some underneath stuff. He's had a, a couple of issues in run defense. Uh, I think he he whiffed a little bit on Braxton Berrios on, on that uh, catch he had down the sideline near the goal line. Uh, but it's been minor stuff. I mean, his his interception was really impressive. Belichick called it out an outstanding play. Uh, the fact that he was able to out jump uh, and out muscle Tyree kill on that play. Uh, I've been very impressed with him. Uh, and, and I was in the same boat. I think I might've even said it on this podcast before the season that, Hey, don't freak out. If he's not sauce Gardner right away, it could take him a little bit of time uh, to sort of get his legs under him uh, as an NFL player. Uh, and maybe some of those growing pains are still to come, but uh, no, I've been very impressed with the way he's played uh, for through the first couple of weeks. And uh, the Patriots have absolutely needed it. I mean, I don't know where they would be as a defense uh, if Gonzalez was not playing at this level uh, going up against the, the caliber opponents that they have. Yeah. He's, he's been incredible. He has been absolutely outstanding for this team. And the Sean Wade points a good one because I remember talking about this on Sunday night. It's like that final drive of the first half. They just went right at him. I think they completed three passes on him in that final drive, which is just unfortunate from a Patriots perspective. But Christian Gonzalez definitely been great for this team. And at some point, you're going to get Jack Jones back. And hopefully Jonathan Jones can play this week, too, because they need him back. And if you think about it, if you have Jonathan Jones, Jack Jones and Christian Gonzalez, that's a really good group, especially with these. I really like most of this. Like, I really like Duggar, obviously, and I think Peppers. I, I like Peppers. So if you, if you get that group healthy, it's a really good defensive backfield. All right, so an early look at the Jets 
You look at Wilson, I get it's the Cowboys, but seven career interceptions against the Patriots to the just two touchdowns. Last week, he had three picks, and I get Summer at the end of the game, but I don't think he saw, the like, I don't think he saw Hooker, the safety. I don't think he saw Curse when he was just running to his right and threw it to Curse. This is like the classic Zach Wilson interception. He threw one to Devin McCourty this way last year, where he's just running to his right, and he tries to throw it down the field, and it gets picked off. But the one thing I'll say is, like, Dallas... They kept the, and this is maybe the best defense in the league, Dallas, San Francisco. I mean, Dallas has been through the first two games, but they kept the Jets running game under control. 16 for what, 64? So not good in terms of the efficiency. But the week prior, the Jets ran for 172, including 127 from Brees Hall. I know one of them is on the big 83-yard run. The Patriots defense defensively got gashed against the run. So they have to, obviously, the Patriots plan is going to be simple. They're going to put this game on garrett wilson but can they get back to defending the run the way that they did against philly or are you concerned about that after what we saw against miami or do you think that was just more of a game plan thing where they were so concerned about the explosive plays where clearly against the jets and zach wilson they're not going to be concerned about that i think that's definitely a a significant part of it you just look at the way they were lining up defensively especially early in the game they were essentially playing three deep safeties on almost every snap, which you just, you don't really see in the NFL. Uh, Even Mike McDaniel and some of the Dolphins players after the game came out and said, yeah, we, we were not expecting that at all, but that's not a look that you usually see. Uh, And obviously when you have so much, so much kind of resources dedicated to the back end, it it can be a little bit more difficult uh, to stop the run. I I thought they were good against the run uh, against Philly. I thought they defended Jalen hurts uh, and those running backs better than expected. Um, And as you mentioned, I, don't think they have a ton of respect for Zach Wilson and his talents. So I think they're, uh, I think they're going to be able to not sell out to stop the run, but definitely beef it up a little bit more uh, against Brees Hall and Dalvin Cook. Uh, obviously, you've still got to combat uh, Garrett Wilson, who's one of the best young receivers in the NFL. And uh, there were some instances, even in the the first game that these teams played last year, uh, where Zach Wilson was able to complete some big plays down the field, most notably to Wilson. Uh, I think he had three or four of those in that game at MetLife stadium. Um, So it's not something you can just say, all right, this guy can't throw the ball. We can just put nine guys in the box. Uh, But it is the calculus changes a little bit when you're not going up uh, against a passing attack. That's as kind of potent and explosive as Miami's Um, this, I mean, this is going to be a, this is a must win game for the Patriots. It's a massively important game. Uh, I think you're in a pretty ideal get right type of spot when you're going up against a quarterback in Wilson that the Patriots have just dominated over the years. Uh, But that jets defense, even though it allowed what 30 points last week, it's still a very good defense. It's still a defense that uh, really stopped whatever the Patriots wanted to do last year uh you've got to hope that the the kind of bill o'brien influence doesn't allow that to uh repeat itself this year and i think this is a game that the patriots should win and should win relatively easily but basically the the jets are back to where they were last year without aaron Rodgers. and last year's jets almost beat the patriots twice i mean that was a five yeah. win i think a five point game uh, and a seven point game so the walk off uh, return yeah, walk the the Marcus Jones uh, kick return. That was probably the ugliest football game I've seen in a very long time until those <laughs> final few seconds. But yeah, I mean, this is not the Jets team that the Patriots used to come in and beat forty five to three every week. Uh, but it's a game they absolutely should win, and they really need to win. I mean, falling to zero and three is very very dangerous, uh, especially in this AFC. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. It's a huge game for the Patriots, ton of pressure on them, and we'll see what the Jets do. Like, if Zach Wilson is really bad in this game, Robert Salas come out and he said he's our guy, even though everybody knows they didn't like Zach Wilson like a couple of months ago. They wanted to move on from him. We'll see if they decide to go in a different direction. I still can't believe they haven't at this point, like knowing what Zach Wilson is. It's shocking to me. I think that I think it will. I, I think that'll be kind of the first line of Robert Sala's postgame press conference this week is, are you still riding with Zach? He's like, you know, we're, we're going to reevaluate everything. We need to uh, put ourselves in the best position to win. Like, I think they want to ride with Zach Wilson, but if he plays the way that he's played against the Patriots in the past, I think they're going to have to seriously reevaluate some things because they do have a talented enough roster to, at the very least, kind yeah. of be a sneak into the playoffs type team. And they don't want to just tank their season because their quarterback can't play. Yeah, like the Jacoby Brissett's of the world. Like you should yep. be calling teams about the, the even Heineke is probably better than Zach Wilson. Like I think the Jets have underestimated. I don't know how because he's been in their building. I think they've underestimated how bad the guy is because he can just ruin your offense, right? It's not like okay, yeah, obviously the ceiling is not going to be there with any quarterback because that Rodgers is right. Rodgers the best, one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Obviously, it's not going to be a high ceiling. But Zach Wilson can rip your floor down. And that's the thing that I think is the most damaging about this. Do you think if the Patriots win, anybody will take a shot at um, the Jets defensive coordinator there about do your job? You think anybody will go up to like Wes Welker style? We just did our job. We did our remember Russ, Wes Welker said, like, we're all good little foot soldiers taking shots <laughs> at Rex Ryan. Now, of course, this Patriots team doesn't have the reputation of that Patriots team. And that Patriots team ended up losing that game. But you think after we hear any we did our job really well. We did our job, like something along those lines after he mocked Bill saying on Hard Knocks. I still don't know why he did that. Like, it made no sense to me. Why are you mocking that saying? It worked. Yeah, and it's a poke the bear type situation that that just doesn't really have much much of an upside. I don't know. Maybe if the Patriots were 2-0 and coming into this game or even 1-1, yeah. and I don't think they're in much of a position at all to be kind of taunting and, and flaunting stuff uh, to their opponents. But... I'm sure that it's something that will come up in meetings and within the locker room this week. I, The Patriots listen to everything. They know everything that's being said about them as much as they like to pretend that they don't. And I would be surprised if that's not something that uh, gets discussed in some way this week saying, hey, look, this uh, you know how important we think do your job is. This is how important they think it is. Like, what, what are you going to do to them now? So I yeah, I would be surprised if that's not a uh, topic of conversation this week. Love it. Love it. All right. That is Zach Cox from Nesson. Zach, thanks so much for the time, man. We always appreciate it. Always have a good time and have fun covering the game on Sunday. Hopefully it's not as bad as that game last year. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for having me as always, guys. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Remember, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can at 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts to offthepike at gmail.com. We'll get to that in just a second with producer extraordinaire Jamie McCullen. Thanks again to Zach Cox. Always enjoy chatting football with Zach. Huge game coming up for the Patriots on Sunday against the New York Jets, trying to avoid falling into that 3 hole. All right, Jamie. So, hey, before we get to these emails, so because I know we got some emails, people want to talk about the Red Sox and the Patriots. What'd you think of my Bill take? Bill to the Chargers. I mean, if I was Bill, I would be very interested for sure. Herbert, come on. Like, yeah, it's a match made in heaven, I, I guess. You think they could get anything from the Chargers? A little trade action? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to trade them, so we'll see what the Patriots get back. In there. I wonder what they'd be willing to give up. They may be willing to give up their next eight draft picks, eight first-rounders to get Bill, considering what a dumpster fire Brandon Staley's been. I, I say that I facetiously, but I'm sure they'd give up something to get Bill Belichick. But 
man. Staley. I might, I might do that trade if I'm the Patriots. Fresh start from a Pats perspective. Maybe you start drafting well again. Maybe get a GM. That'd be cool, right? Yeah. Well, in maybe somebody that's not one of his friend's kids. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jamie, let's get to the emails here. Uh, okay, this is from Jesse in Chicago. Jesse writes, I want to address Gillette Stadium's home field advantage, which I believe is the worst home field advantage in the NFL. Whoa. I watched, I know, hot take, but I kind of see what he's getting at. He says, I watched a large portion of the game Sunday and Monday, and although I was at home, Gillette seemed to be one of the quietest stadiums, and it was even worse against the Eagles. Have you noticed this? My take is that fans are so spoiled from the Brady era that they've been hard to impress, and guess what? It matters to have a loud home field stadium. Just look at our record the past two seasons. Thank you. Love the pod. Yeah, well, I never I never felt like, Jamie, it's like Seattle or Arrowhead no. or Pittsburgh or, you know, one of those places that historically has been really difficult to play. It was just Brady, right? You were playing against Brady. And like in the early 2000s, you were playing against that great Patriots defense. So, yeah, sure, the crowd got into it. But I don't think Gillette Stadium is like just the stadium in of itself where you're like, oh, we got to mm-hmm. go play at Gillette. Where you look at the schedule, it's like, oh, we got to play in Seattle. Or Denver. Denver was a house of horrors sure. for the Patriots, even with Brady, right? Where you go there, you got the whole situation, mile high. But that was always a difficult place to play. Like that, the Patriots, Gillette Stadium has never had that feel to it for me. Like, I, I've never felt like, oh, this is an awfully difficult place for an mm-hmm. opponent to play. The only reason it was tough to play here is because the Patriots, every year for 20 years, had basically the first, the second, or the third best team in the NFL. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I think I was just thinking about the other teams in our division. Obviously, the Jets, that's meaningless. MetLife sucks. But Miami has a pretty good home field advantage. Obviously, yeah, the, weather, the weather, humidity, yeah. it always screws them up in yeah, the early even part though, of the season. It, even though the fans aren't great, but it's the weather, right? So Miami, yeah. like, especially they get a team, you know, in the first, they, they got to be at home this week, right? I mean, because they played their first two yeah, games been on, on the road. road so far. So who do they play this week? I think they play Denver. Yeah, like that's going to be a... That's going to be a home field advantage. Yeah. The Patriots always struggle there, to your point, but that's more of a weather thing than it is sort of like a fan well, base thing. The big thing that I was thinking of was the Bills, who, you know, that's a new, it's a Northeast city, but they have such great fans. Yeah. I feel like that yep. is a real home field advantage. Like I looked it up, including their win on Sunday, they're 13 and five, or sorry. Yeah, 13 and five the past uh, two years there. And it's like, that's that's because they have these passionate fans. It's like, that could be a real thing that is lacking at the Pats. And, you know, they well, have a losing Josh Allen. The and they have the Josh Allen guy. Because remember, <laughs> yeah, like, for sure. Brady, they weren't that good remember, back like, in the day. Brady yeah. had won there, like, it was ridiculous. DJ Manuel like, wasn't. Yeah, I think it up. Brady had won there like 10 straight seasons or something yeah, until they, they broke that record. But yeah, the Bills, that's a great fan base. It's a really, it's a tough place to play. But like, for me, it'd be like Arrowhead, Seattle, Pittsburgh, and Denver. I always hated when the Patriots had to go to Denver. I mean, I always dreaded that game. Sure. But uh, they got to pick it up. I mean, they've had a losing record or a 500 record the past three seasons. Even when they had, you know, a 10 and 7 season, they were still 4 and 4 at home or something like that. And the Broncos? I don't know what's... No, the Pats. Oh, I'm oh. saying even. But, I, I, you know, my one thought was I always heard, you know, it used to have that open end, the uh, Gillette, which they said, you know, made it not as loud as the other stadiums. Then they put in this massive scoreboard. I thought maybe. Maybe it's going to juice the place in terms of uh, how loud it could get. We'll see if that happens. Yeah, well, to your point, though, about Gillette, it is, it's definitely the worst of the four major sports here in terms of the I advantage. don't like going there very much. Like Fenway, when you play at Fenway in the postseason, that's a tough place to play. 
mm-hmm. when you play at the Garden against the Celtics in the playoffs, that's a tough yeah. place to play. Hockey is a little bit different, right, in terms of home ice versus road ice. Yeah. Like, we've seen it in the past, but it's definitely electric if you ever go to a Bruins playoff game. But it's Fenway in the postseason, which we haven't seen mm-hmm. it since 2021, rocking. it's rocking. Like, that game, again, and I know part of it was you were coming out of COVID, that game against the Yankees, the wild card game, when obviously the late Jerry Remy threw out the first pitch, which got the crowd into it even more, Fenway was like shaking. That was yeah. an incredible atmosphere for that wild card game. So, and like we saw going back to 04, 18, 13, like that place mm-hmm. is amazing when the Red Sox are relevant and they're in playoff games. And I, the Garden is great for Celtics playoff games too. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, you think through the, the Pierce Garnett runs that they had. And recently, like the Garden has been, now sometimes they get frustrated at some of the stuff that happens, the turnovers, <laughs> et cetera, like especially, yeah. you know, game, um, game seven and stuff along those lines. But yeah, out of the major sports here, Gillette's definitely the worst home field advantage or yeah, home court, home enough. ice, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you get the cold occasionally in the playoffs. But yeah, other than that, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, that's but, true. Um, that's true. And Brady was so great in the cold, right? He, yeah, he wore the I used to get suit. pumped when. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Think about Manning in the in the rain and snow and stuff like that. Yeah, but, noodle um, arm late in his career. Noodle arm. Noodle arm, do you mean Mac or are you talking about Peyton? <laughs> Both, I guess. <laughs> well, we haven't, we haven't seen uh, Mac in the playoffs since that Buffalo game. And I actually thought yeah, Mac competed yeah. in that game. I don't think he did. He did. Mac he, actually he wasn't bad. Yeah. It's true. Uh, well, speaking of Fenway, there's a couple on obviously the recent drama with the Sox. Uh, this is from Dave in North Carolina. Dave writes, be squared. That was a devastating justification you gave for the firing of Pine Bloom on the pod last week. He gave us a historically poor defense, incompetent pitching, and he froze doing nothing at the trade deadline in consecutive years. You made the case that Kime had to go. My question is whether you think Cora is getting a free pass with all the spotlight on the Bloom firing. He was handed a bad deck by Heim, but he has made some bad decisions as well. Sticking with Kike at shortstop, leaving relievers in too long to get pummeled uh, until the games are out of reach. Pulling one of our few hottest hitters out of the game for Ref Snyder against lefties. I think that happened once with Duran or something. Um, only to forget that it was a road game and the Rays brought in a ready to shut down Ref Snyder. He acts pretty confident for a manager that has finished last in the last four years or three times in the last four years. What do you make of that? Well, I would I would say this about Cora is he has a lot of power within the organization. Okay. Heim Bloom, like if you were going to blame one of the two guys, who would you blame? It would be Heim Bloom. And let me ask it this way, Jamie. So let's say the hypothetical is to answer this question is, and by the way, I don't think that Core has been getting let off the hook. Like people have been upset at some of the decisions mm-hmm. Core has made this year. Like the Bear Claw game, people were pissed about that. I still don't know what he was supposed to do. If you want Joe Vera in that game, yeah. he's still going to get fucking pummeled too, right? But here's the thing. So let's play this game. So if the Red Sox on the same day fired Heim Bloom and Alex Cora. What do you think's happening across the sport? There are teams that would be saying, hey, you think we could get Cora? You think we could hire Cora? Literally, none of the other 29 teams in Major League Baseball are saying, hey, can we get Heim Bloom to run our no. team? They may say, hey, could Heim Bloom run our farm system? Hey, we may want to bring in Heim Bloom to run the farm system. So that's the thing. Like, if you're going to move on from Cora, you got to be really careful about this, right? Because Cora has proven in the postseason that he's an excellent tactician. 
And I just feel like, and I know there's been some criticism for some of the stuff that he's done this year. I would just say this as it pertains to Cora. It's really difficult to manage on a day-to-day basis when you don't have enough arms in your rotation, right? In terms of, for a large stretch there, it was almost two months, Jamie, they had an opener two out of every five games. Like, it's very difficult to manage and manage all your bullpen arms that way. And you actually have to select, hey, which games am I, hey, if I I bring Martin into this game and we're losing right now 4-3, do I have him tomorrow? Because if we're not going to win this game Exhausting. and Martin goes out there and he pitches an inning, it was fucking meaningless, right? So that's a very difficult thing to sort of determine because the problem was for large stretches, they didn't have a ton of good options. And the way they had to do it, even sort of the games that, for example, the games that say these starters that you had, that were actual starters, weren't going deep into games. Well, when Kelsey's going to pitch two, so he's not pitching the next day. Right. So that's another issue that presents itself is so your middle guys to get to those guys may not be there. Right. And you don't have other answers outside of those guys. So it just it became a really difficult situation. And in terms of like, I don't blame Cora for the defense being bad. Like, who's the guys that are good defensive players that are just playing poorly? Maybe you could argue Rafi in terms of like he he has enough range. I don't know what's going on with him. Like, that's it, though. The rest of these guys, Valdez is not a good defender when he was with this team. And I don't really believe that it was Cora's decision like to keep Kike there forever. I'm sure like some of the people, like who are, the, who are they supposed, I guess they could have went to Yu Chang earlier. I mean, that could have been the yeah, case, but remember, though, right? Yu Chang got hurt. They tried to yeah. make that transition, Yu Chang got hurt. So, I mean, I really don't feel like there were a lot. My biggest critique of the shortstop thing is, and look, maybe Cora agreed with it to go with Kike every day. They should have got somebody when Story got injured. There should have been a plan there instead of, and I know Cora really likes it's Kike. Mondesi, right? Yeah, well, Mondesi was dealing with an injury too, right? So yeah. maybe that, maybe if you want to criticize Cora for that, you can, to, that he wanted, maybe he wanted to go with Kike every day as well. Like that, that certainly is a fair criticism if you want to say that, but I would just be very careful if you want to move on from Cora. There's not many managers no, I, across yeah. the sport that are much better than him. Like you're not getting Bruce Bochy or something along those lines. He's got three World Series rings. Now, when I look at what went wrong with the season, I'm, I'm not putting it on Cora. I, the pitching was its a mess, and it'd be exhausting, like you said, to try to cobble things together for months. And then they did not think of the trade of the line in terms of starters. That must have been it's every year. Yeah. It's every year he's yeah. managed with Heim Bloom. Even going back oh to 2021, gosh. the bullpen was an issue yeah. for the majority of that season, and you were bringing starters out of or bringing starters out of the bullpen at the end of the regular season. Yeah. Remember Pavetta, with the, I reference this a lot, the walk-off strike out of Juan Soto. Yeah. Why in the game at all. Yeah, I hear you. The only thing I would say in terms of the defense, like you said, you, you know, these guys, just, they're not equipped to be good at defense. That's not in coaching. But the only thing I'd say in terms of Devers is like how much progress he made last year and then him regressing this year. Obviously, you have to have some accountability on the player himself. But I don't know. You, I, I don't know in terms of coaching if you need to work with him more, really drill it into him. But I just I don't know how else that happens if it's not at least partially related to how as a team you're you're managing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like what what went wrong this year? They worked on his first step last year and stuff and it worked and then he got injured. He wasn't great down the stretch last season, but I, I put that more on the injury. It's like concentration things. And one small thing yeah. that aggravates me about Rafi, and I know this is maybe just the sport, and I've had conversations with people about this, is he's talking to guys at third base constantly and i know that baseball is a social game you see it at first base all the time right 
Yeah. But maybe concentrate a little bit more. Okay, like you've made the most errors of any non-shortstop in Major League Baseball. Yeah, Maybe was... wait on the conversations a little bit, right? Because <laughs> they're just, his errors are like, that's the thing about Rafi is like, when Yoshida can't make a play, it's like, okay, he's, he, he's, yeah. he stinks in the outfield. He's, he's not a good yeah. outfielder, right? So it's Men like shoes. when Franchi couldn't make plays at first base, I'm not going to get mad at Franchi. I'm like, he's not even a first baseman. Like he, he's not good when it comes to that. When J.D. Martinez would occasionally play in the outfield, I'm like, I'm not going to blame J.D. Oh my gosh. He was horrible, right? Like it's not that his fault. Worst. He's just not good out there. With Rafi, it's like, dude, you could be good. But at this point now... I don't know, man. I just don't think he can be an everyday third baseman going forward. And he kind of needs to be because you kind of want to put Yoshida as the DH next year. And the other option would be, well, can Rafi play first base? Well, it's not like Casas can play a different position than first base unless he's DHing. So you don't really have a good solution for Rafael Devers not playing third base every day. And by the way, when you're paid over $300 million, that tells you the organization thinks he can play third for an extended period of time, or at least the guy running yeah. the organization previously did. No, suddenly that contract, I mean, it looks a lot different if he can't play third base. And um, that kind of leads us well, into this next question. Yeah, it Sorry, doesn't match up with the other elite players in no. the sport. Like the other elite players no. in the game right now, Mookie, Acuna, Freddie Freeman. They give you something on defense. These guys are good. Def- in the case of Mookie, like yeah. unbelievable defensive player. Freeman mm-hmm. is a good first baseman. Acuna is a good outfielder, right? The elite players across the sport can actually play defense too. And I would say this about the elite players across the sport too. Guys like Mookie and Freddie Freeman, they don't go through the slumps that Rafi does. Yeah, it's true. They're consistent, for sure. That's true. Um, that kind of brings us to the next question, uh, which is about, this is from Miles. He writes, is Heimblum getting hammered enough for the awful state of the Major League roster? I would say yes, but then he writes, yeah, we've Chad done Finn it. writes, <laughs> yeah, Chad Finn writes, there are no terrible long-term contracts. Now, obviously, I'm not saying Rafi is, is that, but he says, but is that true? If they were offered it for free, would any team take Trevor Story's contract? How about Yoshida? Do people realize he's already 30? He's basically Brian Dahlbeck, a good hitter who can't play the field or run. And while Dahlbeck was a great value, Yoshida is signed for four more years at $19 million per year. What do you make of that? Well, I don't... First of all, let me get to Trevor Story. Because I think Trevor Story, the mistake there was signing him when you knew he had elbow issues. That was the issue, right? Because you knew it felt like at some point and anybody could have looked it up. I mean, you go through, look at his last few years and or his last year in Colorado, the arm strength was way down. Like these numbers are available. I referenced him when they actually signed him. But if you look at Trevor's story in terms of the actual contract now, I don't think it's bad. Like going forward, the first two years of it were bad, right? Because he was dealing with an injury. But if you look at 2024, he's making 22.5. 2025, he's making 22.5. Like, it's not that bad of a contract going forward considering the contracts we've seen in the sport. And we know this. He's going to provide elite-level defense. And I believe next year he's a bounce-back season at the plate. Say he gives you 25 home runs, 25 to 30 home runs from the shortstop position, he gives you elite defense. I mean, you would certainly take that contract. And he can also play elite-level second base for when Marcelo Meyer ever comes up. You can push him over there. So... I don't think that Trevor Story is a bad contract. And I don't really, I don't think Yoshida has a bad contract either because we did find out this year that the bat plays, despite some of the limitations he has defensively. And by the way, somebody would trade for Yoshida because yeah. the bat to ball skills are just ridiculous. And in this new game, this new, with the new rules defensively, you want to leap bat to ball guys. So yeah, somebody would take Yoshida's contract. I really don't think they have any, like the closest thing to a bad contract, I believe, is Rafi's. I don't believe Story has a bad contract anymore. 
when we like rejudge the story contract, it may look bad because of the first two years, but I don't think this is a bad contract. That he, now, I wouldn't even try to move it though, because you need him to be your everyday shortstop starting next season. And you don't want to trade him now when sort of the values at its nadir. If you yeah, were going to exactly. move on from story, it'd be like, say you're out of it. Hopefully that does knock on wood that that doesn't happen again, but say you're out of it at the trading deadline and story's having a good season and you know, eventually Meyer's taking over. That would be the time to move it. It wouldn't be now. Or say he has a really good 2024 season and you just feel like, all right, Meyer is going to play short. Meyer's we'll figure ready. out the second right. base thing. Okay, then you can get like a big haul back. But you wouldn't want to move it now. No, it's definitely at this lowest point. You get, at least, and we talked about that, I think, with Heim before. But I mean, look, yeah, you, you got to hope that he's going to play well next year. Yeah. I, I don't I don't see why he would, frankly. I mean, maybe he will. He's batting 180. Obviously, it's hard to come in the middle of the season. But yeah. I, I mean, he could he could be good next year, or he could be bad again. I, That's I've why I wouldn't trade him. That's why I wouldn't yeah. trade yeah, him. Yeah, I would, like, fair enough. I would I would trade Yoshida before I traded Story because I think he could get value back for his contract. Yeah, because of the fact that he I, had a good. I get, it's tough to say rookie season, but he is technically a rookie. Right. Quite frankly, I would, and I know this is going to sound like crazy from a Red Sox angle. I would see what Devers would bring you in return. Ooh. And I know, Spicy. like, the fan base would be irritated about that and pissed off about... Just see what the value yeah. is. I'm not saying I'd likely move the contract. I'm just saying to see what's out there because right now, if if the hypothetical is you're going to stick with Yoshida, if Yoshida's going to play here, then you have Yoshida, you have Casas at first, and you have Devers. Like, Devers probably isn't a third baseman, right? And you need Yoshida to DH. It's kind of like you have too many spots there where you would have to... And I'm, I, would, the, I would never trade Casas. I mean, Casas is way too no, good I, of a player. I hang on to him. Yeah, I, I, I and mean, look, maybe I'm more infatuated with that skill set more than most people, no, but I, I wouldn't legit. even contemplate doing that, especially at the age. That's why I'd be more likely to look at the Rafi thing based on how much he's getting paid. And I do yeah. worry about Rafi aging, right? He's not like, Mookie is super fit. The guy's incredibly fit. Mm-hmm. I, I do worry about Rafi in terms of the longevity with that contract. I mean, I could totally see Rafi settling in as a great first baseman and just mashing home runs, which, you know, and I, I just think I keep thinking about baseball contracts. It's like, OK, he's overpaid. But if he's an all star level player and he's making a bit more money and he hits the ball really far, it's like it doesn't really matter. I don't think it's like it's when these guys completely fall off the cliff and they don't stay on the field. Yeah. So I think I can live with that. I think I think to your point, I would I would look at Yoshida more than Rafi because Rafi seems special. Yoshida is going to hit 15, 20 home runs like. Yeah. That doesn't really do it for me. Maybe you get some pieces back for him, but... Well, yeah, and with Rafi, too, the injury stuff does kind of concern me, right? Like, he's so it felt like the past few years, less so this year, he's always dealing with something, whether it's a yeah, hamstring, something like something. that, and you do wonder if he continues to stay at that sort of weight. If that, I wonder if he has, like, one of these... Uh, like, it's the cliche in the NBA and the NFL. He's, he came into camp in the best shape of his life, right? Like, he came to spring training in the best <laughs> right. shape of his life. Let's I really think, I want to see the Instagram post from Rafi. He is active on Instagram, so I want to see those in the offseason. Like, we get ripped Rafi. Yeah, he needs to really take over the team next year and really, you know, earn that contract and be the leader of the team, which I saw a little bit this year, like him telling Haim to get some guys at the trade deadline, but I need more of that if he's going to, yeah, warrant that deal. Um, but I can't, I can't go there yet. I can't I can't lose Rafi. It's all we got. Yeah, no, I was just saying if you're going to throw one of those guys out there, yeah. I would put Rafi on the market before I put Casas on the market. Definitely over Casas. The Yoshia thing, I mean, it's been great watching him hit the ball. I have been a little stunned by how terrible he is in left field. It's it's pretty stunning. I had no idea. Obviously, he played in Japan, but 
he can't do anything. It's crazy. Unless no. it's like a lazy fly ball. <laughs> and his arm is crazy. It's the worst arm I've ever seen. Yeah, he is an absolute train wreck in the outfield. He's Luis. Who would I you take the in the outfield, Manny or Yoshida? I was thinking that. I actually brought that up with a friend. I wonder, I wonder if these guys from like the early 2000s, like Barry Bonds and Manny, if they would have played like in this day and age with the defensive metrics. Though I will say with Manny, he well, could at least on, throw a guy on. out at Bonds, second base. Bonds was, Bonds was an incredible outfielder. Even towards the, I, I guess I don't know. I assume by the end when he weighed 400 pounds. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have, have the range ball. that he once had, but Bonds was an incredible outfielder. Young Bonds was, yeah, best athlete on the on the field, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Bonds, well, off. Bonds was really like, even before, he's one of, he, I mean, he may be the best player I've ever seen, but I mean, yeah. he, he definitely is the best player I've ever seen when he was on roids, like unequivocally. Yeah. I mean, no. do you remember that series when he came into Fenway? It was like when he was like three home runs away from uh, breaking the record. I mean, just his, his the imposing plate appearance was insane. Like, yeah, he you just ever smashed seen, every yeah. ball. You ever seen that interview with Greg Maddox? They said, how did you pitch to Bonds? He's like, I just wouldn't. I got to get 27 that, yeah. out somewhere. So I'd, I'd go against the other guys. Like he wouldn't pitch. I him. forget what the record was. He what, He had like 40, 50 intentional yeah. walks that year. Something was insane. Yeah, I, everybody was a Griffey guy growing up. I was Bonds pre-steroids, man. That dude was different. And Griffey was, uh, Griffey's yeah. obviously an all-time great, too. Like, those are two of the best outfielders to ever play. But Bonds was a freak show. For sure. All right, well, I'm, I'm sorry for mentioning him in the bad defense. In terms of Manny, I still like his arm. He at least could throw a guy out of second base. You know what I mean? He's when a good he cutoff. Barehanded yeah. off the wall. Bam. Yeah, he, he, we, Andy's a great cutoff, man. Remember we cut off Johnny <laughs> Damon? <laughs> yeah, I never seen Yoshi to do that. No, he hasn't cut anybody off yet. All right, Jamie, <laughs> great stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y.